Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Bill Champlin. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. Bill Champlin is a man who has experienced musical success on his own terms. Over the years, you've known him as a solo artist, session musician, vocalist, and longtime member of the band Chicago. From the very start of his career, you'll find interesting detours that have taken him to places where other musicians only wish they could experience. From the early psychedelic era of the Sons of Champlin in San Francisco, to laying down smooth vocal tracks with David Foster, to his contributions in Chicago, Bill found his way to his own music by listening, learning, and absorbing from the very best. The fact is, if you step back to see the breadth of his talent, at the core you'll find a man who has been gifted with one of the most soulful voices that has helped define what R&B is today. That's why we're eagerly awaiting his new album, which will be released later this year. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Bill Champlin. Hey, Bill, thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, what's up, gang? Hey. We're frozen, you're frozen. Maybe maybe somebody's <laughs> listening to us in a warmer climate and I we know. can feel them. You know? uh, <laughs> <laughs> this interview is dedicated to those warmer climates. <laughs> yeah, right. Tell hey, me about it. hey, listen, we'll I was... start with Don Ho's whole whole set list, you know what I mean? Exactly. It, it might warm us up somehow. <laughs> Tiny bubbles, let's roll that. Tiny bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Don Ho, either that or Don Ho or his little brother, Butt Ho, which is another really great artist. I don't <laughs> <laughs> and his sister Ima. I'm, his sister's Ima. You're right. All righty. I think I that's what, what her album sounds like. Well, I'm just, you know, it, it's out. It's just called Amy Winehouse. That's right. <laughs> Did you see that? That was great, wasn't it? Uh, Goodness me, we guys, we're in trouble already. We better stop soon. <laughs> Screw the interview, Bill. Let's just talk, man. Oh man, you know, the thing is, it's like my wife says, "Bill, you were doing so well," and suddenly, boom, right in the gutter. You know? Oh my like, god, right down the tubes. You know? <laughs> I don't know, I'm wiping my tears right now, man. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, she was he is literally hey, wiping man, his tears. Having fun, you got no business being in this business. I know, right. not, can't, can't take yourself I mean, that I mean, seriously. I don't, I don't like this business if I'm not having. Fun and, and a lot of times I'm not. It's like, oh, what am I doing? And what am I doing here? Mm. <laughs> just relax and just laugh it off. It's all four minute ditties. This ain't Beethoven. Let's let, just let it fly. Right. <laughs> hey, listen, I was recently on your Bill Champlin website and I noticed that you had a, a, an interesting list of, uh, of demos that you posted. And uh, well, you know, those are all just you know, I got a I got an iTunes playlist full of stuff that I've just had over the years that yeah. I haven't really released any. A lot right. of it, you know. So on my on my website and on, on on MySpace and stuff like that, I'll usually put a little some snippets of some stuff, you know, sure. so people know know who I am. But none of that is on the new album. Right. Yeah. The new album that's coming out. I think we're talking about maybe a June or July release. It's uh, really cool. Uh, I I just got the final uh, you know mastered you know you know with a with mm-hmm. the relative volumes put together and the, the amount of time between songs and all that that particular copy of it today and listen to it and it's like this is good. That's good cool. Piece of music. Well, I was going to save uh, talking about that to the end, but let's go ahead and talk about your this this new album. Well, I think on your MySpace blog, you mentioned it was going to be out in March or April, but it's been pushed back to June, you say? Yeah, June, you know, and if it's being pushed back to June and July, I can pretty much guarantee you, having been in the record business for this many years, I can pretty much guarantee you that means September. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime anybody tells you it's going to be July, you know it's going to be later. Well, tell us a little about this album, uh, you know, uh, from, I mean, stylistically, and, and who are some of the musicians that you enlisted for this, this album? Well, you know, we did it really kind of an interesting way. It's a brand new way. What we did is we picked really good songs. We got four guys. We went in and rehearsed it with the four with the same four guys. Rehearsed it and arranged it with the four guys. Uh-huh. And we went in and recorded with the four guys. Uh-huh. And then that just meant that over you know because a lot of records I've done up to now have been you know one one instrument at a time you mm-hmm. know. 
that kind of thing, or I'd cut with a with a sequence and put the vocals on, and then have replace the drums, and then replace the bass, and replace you know that kind of thing. Right. Whereas with this, we just really wanted to get that feel, just the the really straight ahead feel. So we went to a, we all went to like five or six days of recording out of uh, out of our own home cities. Mm-hmm. We went to New Jersey, way up at this little uh, studio, barbershop studio in Hopat Kong, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and we recorded up there with Jason Cassaro, who's an awesome engineer. Mm-hmm. And we just did it the old-fashioned way. We just went, we went straight for it. And nobody had to say, well, I'll be right back. I've got to go take the kid to school or pick the kid right. up or yeah. go to the store. I mean, we, it was like being in summer camp. And it was, that was kind of a cool thing about being away from home for that. Yeah, yeah. Did you collaborate with uh, any of the, the guys on, in the writing aspect? Or did you, did you bring everything pretty oh, yeah. much? I mean, me and, Bruce, uh, me and Bruce Geich, who I've written with millions of times. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, George Hawkins, who's a, a, yes. you know one of my favorite bass players and singers, mm-hmm. and I, I think he's got to be maybe my favorite. You know, him and Roshan and Westmoreland are my two favorite bass players right, yeah. on the earth. You know, and uh, and George, uh, so George and Bruce and I wrote three of the songs, two or three of the songs on there. And Bruce, uh, you know, I've written, I wrote a couple, couple songs with uh, one with my wife, one a couple with my son. Mm-hmm. And my son's ridiculous. Just check out his MySpace page. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's Will, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's got some he's got some major moments. There's one song on there where the the vocals just get passed around from him to me to my wife. So it's like oh, whole, very cool. Whole, got the whole Sam Danley on there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I haven't done really a solo album. I did a Sons album a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. but I haven't really done a son uh, a solo album in a good long time. And I think it was I think I was long overdue for it. And I just we cut the tracks up there and then brought the brought the files back here. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, if this was twenty years ago, I'd have said we brought the tapes back here. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> but, t- t- you know, so we brought everything back here, and I got an engineer down here, and I just, you know, rather than learning Pro Tools and doing vocals at the same time, I just went, I'm just, you know, for this, I'm just going to hire an engineer and mm-hmm. and go for it. So I did all all my vocals here in the basement of the house. Right. Excellent. We built a studio here when we first moved here a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That's neat. This is a whole new world of promotion. I mean, as this new album launches out, of course, you've introduced a new element, MySpace and, and the web and so forth. I mean, strategically, how do you plan to really thrust this out into the market? Because when, you know, without the well, web... I'll tell you, there's, there's, we're doing a different thing. There's a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Rob, Rod Simons, who's actually a sports, uh, he's a sports announcer for the Minnesota Vikings. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does, uh, I think TV or radio, I heard both. Right. For Minnesota Vikings, when they're they're local sports guy, right? Okay, and he's an awesome uh, uh, f- uh, filmmaker, basically, and he's making a documentary of basically my career and 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 you know kind of a lot about this album. We, we actually went and recorded handful. We did a you know they they did a five camera shoot at a Suns gig. Very cool. Uh, that we played in Vegas. A really nice gig. Nice lighting. Decent. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty decent room. And uh, and and a, you know a lot of uh, a really long interview and talking about each one of the songs on the record and, and stuff like that. So he's out of this documentary that he's that he's putting together. He's going to put in these like minute and twenty second little snippets yeah. with little bits of the music in it, and you know some of it with uh, you know with some footage of the recording of the record and and, and the whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be probably about a half an hour long, and I think that what we're planning on doing is is when we sell the record, that's going to go with it. Oh, that's cool. But before that, we're going to probably be putting up little little snippets and what we're calling vignettes. Uh, before that, and and just try to put them, you know, on every every website we can find. Exactly. So I mean, there's there's a bit of that. These are these are places to promote that I I don't think a lot of you know I you know listen I'm really old school. I mean, I started making records before they invented records. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were just wor- they were working on the buckboard at that point. <laughs> So I mean, my my whole idea of like record company and you know how to promote and where to sell right. records yeah. is, is is really you know I mean there's no place to sell records there's there aren't record stores anymore. You're right. Mm-hmm. There's electronic stores and coffee stores and WalMarts and uh, and different you know different racks at different places, but there's not really there's not really you know CDs are kind of become sort of and I, and I think a lot of that's because of the, people are downloading one song at a time. Mm-hmm. And which I think it'll be, you know, that'll be available for my record. But I mean, I come from the world where, you know, you know, Sergeant Pepper. One song off of Sergeant Pepper doesn't mean anything. The whole album's awesome. Right. I come from that world where the record should tell a story. You know. Exactly. And uh, and an album, you know, from beginning to end, you know, it's a good album. If at the end you say, I got to hear this whole thing again. Mm-hmm. 
You know, and you can think of a handful of albums like that, but not lately. Yeah. You know, yeah, you don't you're think right. of somebody's. Yeah, you don't think, hey, this guy just put out an album. You know, maybe Train, or occasionally there's a, there's yeah. a you know, Foo Fighters maybe, or something that'll, that'll come out that's like, whoa, this is like, this album is is so cohesive and it's so together and it's in it's it's in its own thing. It's not just a hand. It's not a collection of songs. Mm-hmm. It's a whole field. You know, one thing. You know, each song connects to the next one perfectly. And, Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times you're just lucky to get them to work like that, which in my case has happened sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I always try to shoot for that kind of album. I don't always achieve it, but I think with this one, it's pretty cool. Excellent. Well, it's good to hear. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you're going to like it. It's a, it's a definitely a vocal vocal city. There's no question about it. And there's some... Man, the players on it, it's uh, Bruce Geich on guitar, George uh-huh. Hawkins on bass. And George played on... He was with Fogarty up until about six months ago. Okay. For the you know two years before that, and then I, he was with he was actually him and Tris played with Kenny Loggins for like. 12. That's right. That's right. Back in those days, and then George has played all over the place with all kinds of different people. Mm-hmm. He's just he's an awesome bass player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I got him on I got him singing on the record too, and and that's great. And then I've got uh, you know there's some guest shots on the record. I got I actually even got Peter Cetera to come out and do some background. Vocals. Really? Hey, I did it for one of his records, so I figured <laughs> he'd return the favor. Yeah, I got Steve Lukather to play a little bit on the record. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, Luke's Luke's bad boy. Yeah, and you, you laid down some tracks for him and return on his new album, right? Yeah, I just did a couple of you know, just added to some backgrounds that he already had, just to put a little growl on their stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Luke's got a couple solos on this record that's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, Steve's Steve's through the roof. He's and man, I, he played me some of his solo album. And keep an eye open for that. That thing's awesome. I got to sit in with him uh, last year, a couple of days in the studio, and and you know, watch him lay down some tracks and pick out guitars. And he's just, I, I was the happiest fly on any wall. <laughs> oh, he's an amazing he's an amazing musician he's a really good singer really good writer yeah. he, and he's not just you know I mean a lot of times you get the feeling yeah he's just a he's just a fast gun man he's so much, he's so much deeper than that he does there's so many things that he does that are so great it's oh yeah wonderful anytime you can get a Luke anywhere near a project it's always happening right and he was in the middle of something he says I'm not really taking dates right now but I'll tell you what I'll just I'll knock up a few for Bill and he can make, make go and make some noise on mine and we'll be cool yeah but, Bill, it, it really comes down to craft. I mean, you talked a couple of seconds ago about the way you think. You know, you don't think about one song at a time. You think about an album and, and the way it should hold together. Well, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like doing a show. You know, the sequencing of songs and how you present a show is kind of, you know, I kind of look at the show sort of the same way yeah. or set. You know, it's the same way I look at an album. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Now, it's weird because when I originally started, when I originally thought to do this record and I was talking to the guys at the company, which is a company called Dream Makers out of Jersey, Mm-hmm. Good people over there. I was I was talking more about doing a real swampy kind of bluesy record, which I've always kind of wanted to do. Because you know I've done a few blueses in my day, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one of the only blueses I've ever cut has been on television every day for the last twenty years <laughs> in the heat of the night. That's right. That's right. TV show. Uh huh. So I mean, I figured, well, man, maybe I can maybe I can just do kind of a sort of a bluesy album or swampy kind of a swampy kind of thing, yeah. and then I sent all my demos to the guys at the company. And my co-producer Mark Edinger, and everybody kind of went. You know, it doesn't seem like with all the stuff you got here, it doesn't seem like a smart move to do just one kind of thing. Doesn't it seem like you want you know take the best of what you got, and who cares whether it's like <laughs> you know pop or or R and B or blues or right. jazz for that matter? Right, right. I mean, I got one uh, uh, one acapella piece in there where the you know the band comes in at certain points, but it's you know it's basically sort of almost a transfer take six kind of thing mm-hmm. you know not that i'm in the same i'm not anywhere near in the same ball game as those guys but you know i'll take a shot at it you know what i mean well sort of reminiscent of the west coast all-stars feel right yeah a little bit that 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 was that was uh that was a little i think you know it was predictably pedestrian in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i mean there was a lot of good things on it but i've i thought that you know just because of the material that was chosen for that we couldn't really hop too far into it. We had to kind of keep it pop. You know, it's mm-hmm. poppy stuff. Right. So, I mean, as much as I like to try to voice things around and play some games, I got away with a few things here and there. But and it was it was that was an interesting record, but it wasn't it wasn't going it wasn't going. I mean, the first time I heard Take Six, I went, "That's the end of the triad for me. I'm done." <laughs> so, uh, you know, from here on in, I'm gonna, I'm gonna at least try to keep these guys in mind when I put something together. It right. may not be, you know, those guys are awesome. Yeah. Awesome arrangers and the and the their voicings are just 
through the roof, and I'm mm-hmm. just not quite that guy, but I'm, you know, I like to get, get a little closer to that. Lean toward that more so than toward Beach Boys, you know what I mean? Right. If you look, I mean, if you look at, you know, kind of the, the advent of R&B, R&B where, it, where it used to sit and mm-hmm. where, it, you know, where it's kind of hip-hop kind of took a, a really serious right. turn. exactly. Actually, contemporary gospel has taken up where R&B kind of left off. Isn't that true, though? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. man, true. is it leading the charge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listen to I listen to some of these you know serious spirit and praise channels and stuff like oh, yeah. that on uh, on uh, on uh, well, I guess it's serious radio one of yeah. the one of the satellite radio things. And it's just like oh my god, dig these piano. Did you happen to watch the Grammys? Yeah. Did yeah. you see that that whole uh, gospel um, segment? The they had the Clark sisters. They had I believe the it was are awesome. Aretha. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a, I've been in a Karen Clark for years. Oh my God! What phenomenal singers! BB Winans was there, but a young guy that was maybe one of those uh, these le- on the leading edge of the the gospel R and B was a guy named Israel Houghton. Did you listen to him at the very end oh. playing with a band? He was tearing it up. Oh yeah, and it was, and you're right. It is that that is, is that the uh, guy that was playing the guitar. Yeah, yeah, with the hat. He's mm-hmm. playing guitar and had a, like a, a and one of those you know hang on your head kind exactly. of exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, he's bad to the bone. He is, and they were. Well, you know, were... I mean, I, I hang out. I hang out with a certain amount. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the contemporary Christian artists uh, that's that's really made a lot of noise in the contemporary Christian scene is a guy named Michael English. And Absolutely, right. He's, he's. I got a little duet with him on the record. Really? Oh, cool. This? Cool. Oh yeah. He he's I mean, phenomenal. He's doing a new album, so I went and stacked some background vocals on his record, and I've done some of his records before, yeah, uh, years ago, and uh, and I just you know we kind of ran actually I ran into him at Home Depot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Michael, give me, your, give me your phone number. Let's see what's happening. Yeah, and uh, and at some point in the game, I, you know, it was the same song that Peter was singing on, and we just couldn't get our schedules together to do any more than just a background date. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna have Michael come over and sing. So Michael came over and sang on this thing, and then, you know. You get that guy up in his roundhouse. Oh my God, Michael English he's is power. He's like up up in the rust rust taff, almost Michael Bolton kind of thing. Like, You're right. Wow. He, You're right. He gets upstairs and starts tearing it up, and you just you feel like there's somebody's ripping up a piece of paper next door. You know? Oh yeah, he's an awesome, awesome singer. That's that's really cool. Also, we did one tune where I went out. Have you ever heard of uh, Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns? No, I have. Yeah, there's a group out of Vegas. Yeah, and. Uh, Santa Fe is, is uh, guys. I've been, you know, Jerry Lopez is one of the one of the members of the group. He was oh, actually with yeah, Tom yeah. Scott for a good while. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they and I used their horn section. I had Jerry sing on some stuff. And their horn section, they do a Monday night thing at the Palms Hotel in uh, in Las Vegas. That is just if if you're there on a Monday night and you're not at this at this, yeah, this is a free show. There's no cover. It's in, it's in the wow. I'm going to write that down because I'll be out there next month. <laughs> it's a seven. It's a set like a six or seven piece horn section. Of, oh, you know, like a two. You know, drums and hand drums, like three three drummers basically. Uh, Roshan Westmoreland, probably one of the best bass players on the earth. Yeah. Uh, Dave Richardson, awesome piano player, and four of the best singers you've ever heard. Oh, all slamming on this material, and it's just like, oh my god, the arrangements are, you know. Well, didn't Jerry and, and Lenny and actually Cleto Escobedo didn't they do some background? Uh, I, I recall their names from uh, one of the demos. Whatever happened to, I believe, to yeah. our love? Yeah, that was theirs. That was their stuff. That was their stuff. What incredible yeah. voices! That's great. Yeah, they're ridiculous. Well, Cleto's doing a TV show. Now. Right. He's he's uh, he does the, he's the band leader on, on the uh, Jimmy Kimmel show. Yeah, he's got Jack Babco. Babco dad play on that show. Yeah, he's with Babco. And, uh, but uh, but Jerry and his brother Lenny, and uh, there's two other singers. There's uh, uh, I know uh, hmm. Jamie is one of the guys, and I forget the, the fourth guy's name. There's so many guys in that band, I can't remember any of their names. But at any rate, I use I use the horn section on one of the tunes. So uh-huh. I don't I don't do a lot of horns because. Right. I do it all year. Who needs to do horns? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing a solo album. What am I trying to do? Make it sound like Chicago? Just <laughs> or the Suns, for that matter. You know. Right. I mean? Well, speaking of the Suns, I want to go back a little bit. You know, and that that band was was huge back in the late '60s and, and early '70s in the San Francisco uh, huge, area. I'm not sure about. Well, I mean, you definitely had a, a pretty a pretty steady following out there. And our the following San- our following was mostly other musicians. Really? Really? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, uh, ask ask anybody who was in that scene, who ever caught us during those days, they'd mm-hmm. always just say, "Oh my God, those guys were writing some ridiculous stuff." And, yeah. 
and you know, I mean, we we were always kind of trying to be on the front edge of that of that thing. But of course, with that band, any time opportunity knocked, we answered the phone. You know, I got a poster in the other room. It's, 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 I think it's. Junior Wells, Sons of Champlin, and Santana Blues Band. <laughs> wow. <Holy laughs> somebody, somebody didn't go anywhere. <laughs> somebody did. That's <laughs> one of those. Well, why do you suppose uh, the band never took off and, and didn't get the uh, the accolades like a Santana or didn't get the you know the national exposure? Well, you know, it's bad luck. There's a lot of groups. that uh, There was a group called C-Train. You remember those guys? C-Train. Are they out of the They had a violinist that was running the show named Richard Green. It was an awesome violin. Okay. And and that group had, I mean, they were. that was another band that was just so good that never caught any air. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there's a group called Chase that was ridiculous. Chase you was know, awesome. Blood had a hard time getting through. That was Bill Chase, right? Uh, yeah, it was a, a trumpet player. Was yeah. A trumpet player or sax player? He was trumpet, he definitely was a trumpet. trumpet. Player. Yeah. He was incredible. Yeah, and they, the, their band was ridiculous. They oh, were yeah. so good. It was, you know, and there was a lot of bands that just kind of didn't, you know, they just didn't catch any air. And, you know, the same thing happened with the Suns. It was. You know, I mean, I could probably give you a million reasons. You know, smoking too much dope probably had a lot to do with it, you know, in those days. And, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we had this sort of hype about get high and all this other thing, and mm-hmm. all of that's wonderful and all of that's great. But, we, you know, when we started believing it ourselves, we kind of screwed up. Yeah. And we were a classic example of, like, here, here was all the promise in the world, and we didn't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, you look at you look at the first album of, uh, of Blood, Sweat, and Tears when, uh-huh. when Al Cooper was singing. Mm-hmm. There's some awesome stuff on there. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, but it was the second one where they had all of you know when when Gersio got involved and all that other kind of scene. You know, all of a sudden stuff started happening for him, and uh, and then then it, then it took off. I mean, Tower of Power, as big as we think they got, they never really got that big. You're right. Yeah. You, you know, some. they had they were had some. They were very fortunate, and especially when Lenny was singing, they they had some hits. And they're still on the road. I mean, if you ever see them come through town, go see them. Oh, I saw them a couple of years. Eddie and I saw yeah, them a couple of years ago, and, and they're still putting on a phenomenal show. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, this is, we're talking about Tower of Power. This, yeah. this is one of those bands that should be on a government grant. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think the Neville Brothers should. I think the Suns should, for that matter. Yeah. Toto. Have you seen Toto lately? Uh, a lot. Yeah, Eddie and, I are, Eddie and I are yeah. groupies. <laughs> yeah, they're, you know, and they've and they got Greg Filling Games right. playing with them now. Yeah, about it. we've had a lot of those guys as guests here on the show. So awesome band! I mean, every time I hear them, I'm just like, "Oh my god!" Oh yeah, break. It's like Steely Dan with big teeth, you know, sharp <laughs> that's, ones. That's right. But it's just musically. I mean, there's there's still some people that are kind of musically attempting to do something other than, I mean, like a record company A and R guy thing. Now, you know what the A and R guy is doing? It's like, hey man, just make it simple. Make it simple, man. Just make it simple. Make it simple. Why? So you can understand it? I don't want to make a record for an A&R guy. Right, right. I've done that enough. Yeah. I see that happen all the time. Well, let's, let's, make, let's get them all turned on over at the record company. And the record company's got a bunch of lawyers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, we and have plenty guys of guests. Making, making musical decisions? Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've had countless of guests, Bill, that uh, have come on. And, and they pretty much report the, the same thing. You know, they've done the A&R thing. And, and, you know, they write for the labels and so forth. But for, for some reason, the real craft is just overlooked, man. They go straight for the, for the bucks instead of the real quality of the whole thing. And that, you know, that, that just basically... Had, creates a pool of of just amazing music that's out there that's totally you know it's inaccessible to the crowds you know because yeah. you know it, it's people have no way to make it uh, to, to the market and, and I saw a thing on, I saw a thing on TV one time and they were talking to a uh, Madison Avenue uh, advertising yeah and they were saying well why is it that the that the demographics out there in the world are really the you know the the age group of I guess thirty five to sixty is way more than the age group of fifteen to twenty three. Yeah. Why are you making all of your commercials aiming at that group fifteen to twenty three, and not paying any attention to that other group thirty five to to fifty, yeah. you know, thirty five to sixty, you know, the basically baby boomers. Right, right. And everybody, you know, and you get to talk to record guys and say, well, you know, they can get Celine Dion if they want them, you know, but we're going to sure. go after this young shit. And the reason why is because you got a young, first of all, you got the young kids. There is still the possibility of word of mouth. Yeah. Because the baby boners aren't talking to each other about music. That's right. They're talking about lawns. Mm. You know? 
<laughs> right. <laughs> or whatever, you know, or, you know, or, well, well, my, or stocks and bonds or who's who you're voting for or whatever, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there's really not that much of a, a of a situation. I mean, you know, where do you advertise record? I've been I've been telling my company, so let's go on the History Channel. Right. You know, let's go on, t- uh, you know, on the Learning Channel. Let's go on, uh, uh, let's go on Arts and Entertainment. Sure, let's go sure. on channels that are aimed at the audience that, that we want to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, my, my point that I was making is that that's one of the reasons that's, that uh, Toto's fan base is so international. Oh, they're all over, you know, they only tour really big time in, in, in Europe. Uh, yeah. they, I mean, they crowd amphitheaters that are, you know, 20,000, 30,000 people, you know, and mm-hmm. they, people over there really appreciate, you know, the, the real quality for some reason. And, well, um, you know, Cool and the Gangs does the same thing. They slam over there. Yeah. I mean, uh, we did a couple of gigs with them in Houston, and, we, and you know, yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, they were. They sounded wonderful. I right. mean, they were kicking ass. Sure. I mean, just you know, I said, of course, it's cool. That's one of the best bass players on the earth. I don't think anybody ever quite gets that. <laughs> yeah, cool. The bass player. Ooh, oh yeah, ooh, man, that's the perfect notes, perfectly played. <laughs> Him and Verdine, I think, are my two. You know, two oh, yeah. favorite well-known bass players. You know? I don't know how Verdine can even play the way he moves. I, I think it's almost <laughs> impossible. Hey, his pocket is is pretty undeniable. Oh yeah, right Jeez, where it is, man. Tell you. I had fun playing with them for a couple of years. I gotta admit, yeah. we did those those two summers with those guys, and just whenever we got up there and Verdine was playing, it was like, oh, there's a groove. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know. Plus he had you know he had amplifiers on the stage. We don't use amplifiers; we use pods and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of caught up in the in the so far into the in ear world that uh, you know the last thing we want on stage is sound. I know, right? Let's keep the stage clean. <laughs> keep the stage clean. Yeah, keep the stage clean, keep the sound down, no, don't make any noise. No, right. Nobody wants to see an on-and-off switch anywhere. <laughs> right. Okay, I got you. <laughs> it's a game show, you know. Uh, but, you know, it, it, out front, the music still sounds good. It's just hard to kind of get it to... You're right. I don't know, it's just hard to get it moving without a, you know, without a, uh, an SVT behind you slamming you in the ass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, good bass amp, you know. There's something about right. just, just pushing air with sure. speakers. Just it, makes, it just feels different. It makes you play different. Right. I'm actually this year. I'm actually going to make an attempt at in-ear monitors and see if I can see if I can make them work for me. Yeah, because you typically wear headphones, don't you? Yeah, I, I just never liked. Uh, you know, I've, I've got weird ear ear canals anyway, and they they apparently have, have improved them a lot. The couple times I tried them, I hated them so really? much. Yeah. It was like so isolated. But now you know I'm playing in a band with, with everybody in in ears, so the guy not in ears is just as isolated. So what am I talking about? Yeah, I've got a chronological question. This regards the Suns. Well, I think on your website. It indicates that the first Sons of Champlin record was was loosened up naturally, whereas uh, the Sons of Champlin site has Fat City listed as the first. Yeah, that actually was. A, you know, there was one album that we made uh-huh. in uh, in '65, maybe. Yeah, '66. Might have been '65 or '66. Prior to Fat City, early on, and we made it for uh, for Trident uh, Productions. It was Frank Werber. Okay. And I think it was on Verve Records, but I don't think the album it, itself was released. We made the album, but I don't think it was released. I think they released a single. Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of, and the company kind of sort of fell apart and all kind of fell through, but but they they still owned all this material. Now, the material was released much, much later. It was it was recorded before the Loosen Up record. Yeah, I see. So we recorded really before we had, we had a horn band, as it were. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we had a, one sax player, but that doesn't make it a horn band. It just means it's one sax player. I gotcha. But uh, uh, but we recorded all that early. So, I mean, but there's two tunes, Fat City and uh, and a song called Sing Me a Rainbow, that were released off of that record in uh, in 19. I think it was 66. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. maybe 67 okay. at, the, at the earliest. And then and then the Loosen Up album was over on Capitol, and that was released. Okay. Very, very. I think maybe almost the last couple of days of '68 or the first couple of days of '69. Mm-hmm. A, a double album, supposedly for the price of one, and I think somebody told me it was released the same day as Chicago's first record. Interesting. Yeah. On the on the album "Loosen Up," um, there's a cut. There's a track called "1982-A," um, which I totally dig. That the way it starts. We wrote out. that song. I wrote that song two days before we went in to start Basics. Really? Wow. That was the first thing we recorded, and and we didn't have a title for it. Yeah, and when we slated, you know, the, when the engineer slated, he says, "Okay, here's the purchase order number yeah. for the album," <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which happened to be 1982. Uh. 
<laughs> so that's how, you know, and so on our first cassettes that we took on, we'd, we'd listen to it and go, not even cassettes, it was reel to reel at that right, point. Game. We'd, right. we'd listen to it and go, 1982A. Well, hell, let's just call it that. It's already on a <laughs> yeah. cassette. You know? Right, right. Well, that, that so track. That track was. That's how uh, that, that song got its name. People are going, oh man, what does 1982A mean? It must mean something about LSD. That's right. Real. <laughs> no, it's a purchase. It's a purchase order for the album. You know, it, it's Capitol's purchase order number. <laughs> now let's go get high. <laughs> yeah, how's that for D? <laughs> yeah, there's some. Oh, I mean, it's like 25 or 64. They got all kinds of different reasons. You know, oh, right, right. All kinds of. All kinds of crazed reason for uh, uh, for you know for what that was supposed to be like you know <laughs> it was 25 or 26 minutes to 4 in the morning that's right. what it was about <laughs> or Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds it was actually about a kid looking at a at a uh, at a cartoon at a comic strip Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds interesting that's what the kid said so you know I mean Paul McCartney went oh okay let's just do that yeah, <laughs> I mean, it had, it just happened to be LSD. So I mean, around that period of time, everybody went, "Oh, oh, it's got to be LSD." Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, similar to uh, 1982A, Yes did the same thing with their 90125 album. You know, that was 90125 is actually the catalog number for their album. That's, is that that's, what it was? Yeah, yeah that's why. There they, you go. That's why they called it that. Yeah. Well, there's something a, very, very deep. I always thought it was nine, <laughs> nine, for example, Beverly Hills nine hundred one five zero or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Zip code of Beverly Hills. I, I love those stories. There's a, there's an English band, uh, reggae band, that were called UB Forty. And, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an unemployment. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yes, yep. ticket, yeah. Um, unemployment form. You know, that they use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talk about deep. That's huh? Pretty cool. I mean, you, if you watch that band, you go, uh huh. Uh-huh, I, I, I get it. I get it. Right. <laughs> I mean, even even though that they've been, you know, pretty wildly successful, they've done quite well, and it's a great band to hear. Sure. But uh, they've done well with themselves. But the, the name is just perfect. You can see those guys were. <laughs> Hey, what are we going to call ourselves? I don't know. And everybody looks around and they're filling out their forms. How about you, B40? <laughs> Sounds good. I love it. We had, before we uh, started the interview, we talked a little bit about, uh, and we mentioned the name Greg Matheson. Uh, there's, a, there's a demo uh, ah, Mr. thing. Ah, Matheson. You know, uh, he helped you. You recorded a song you, that you co-wrote, I believe, with him for one of his albums, A Foreign Fire. Uh, a Foreign Fire. Yeah, for West Coast Groove album that he had. Uh, West Coast Groove album is, man, t- talk about grooves. Yeah. Deep, just deeper than, you know, I mean, Greg Matheson has never put together anything that wasn't just right off the hook. Right. Group. Yeah. I remember I was working for David Foster once, and he was producing a Denise Williams record. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was one song on there that was like during the disco era called I Got the Next Dance. Remember right. that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was all Denise and me singing on that. Wow. And, uh, and and I got in there and I was listening to it. I, it was after a really long week of just nothing but work. I was a, I was a total crunched. It was on a Saturday, and I remember going to the session, and I was going, this grooves more than David's usual tracks. I said, David, man, this track is slamming. He says, yeah, I got Matheson to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> I, I did a whole, the Burn Down the Night album was with Greg. And right. That's the Every every once in a while, I pull that album out. It's like, oh, what an awesome record! Right. <laughs> and I've written really, really good stuff for them. There's a song called "Party Time in D.C." that I put on one of my albums. Yeah, it's a me and Greg thing. It's just awesome. Well, he's he's he's, a... he's one of the best. He's one of the unsung heroes of the of the scene, as far as I'm concerned. He's bad to the bone. We had a great time talking with him, and uh, I tell you, everything he touches has that deep groove to it. And I'm like, gee whiz, it's just a it's just one of those gifts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Trevor Veach used to say, young, gifted, and Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Trevor Veach is a, a contractor around town for a while. He says, well, let's get together with Greg, you know, young, gifted, and Mexican. <laughs> 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 Trevor's a funny, I mean, Greg's, you know, half Irish and half Mexican. He's just a, <laughs> is he really? I didn't know that. And all funky, man. He's, you know, Mathis is funkier than a three-day-old Band-Aid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's another Tristan Bowden yeah, line I, I got to get. I like that. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> yeah. Like, how high was he? Well, he was so high he could go duck hunting with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> that's high. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, the last album you recorded with the Sons of Champlin called uh, Hip Little Dreams was uh, recorded back in, I guess, it what was it, 2002? And, uh, well, you know, that was recorded over a period of... Uh, I think it was released released in two thousand two. Okay, but I think we actually recorded it probably late nineties. Yeah, or late, you know, the late, uh, you know, nineteen uh, nineties. Well, that was quite a while between that album and the and the one you had previously recorded. Right? How 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 much of a oh yeah 
Yeah. What brought you guys back together? Well, you know, we just had fun playing. Yeah. Pretty much. Well, you know, somebody said, well, 97, there was a, you know, hey, we'll get you to film more gig and do some other things, play Billboard Live in L.A. Well, you know, we'll get you a handful uh-huh. of gigs. Let's put together, uh, you know, we were talking about just doing a Fillmore gig and, and throwing together a, a reunion thing. And we did it, and then we and we kind of, you know, we got Mick Gillette to do it. Tom Saviano did it. We, and we got a, a lot of rehearsal just to try to mm-hmm. dig stuff out from wherever it was and put horn charts together and do the whole nine yards. And uh, this was a couple of weeks rehearsal, and then we played like four gigs, and at the end of it we said, well, let's see if we can get more gigs. So we've kind of been keeping going with it. And and now, you know, and at some point Haggerty took a bail, you know, Terry bailed out. And then uh, so with Hip Little Dreams, we, we did a live album, I think, uh, at Luther Burbank Center in in, uh, in Santa Rosa. Uh-huh. And that was in probably 98, maybe. Yeah. And he said, yeah, it was probably 98. And then, uh, and, then, uh, and then I think about a year and a half later, somebody talked us into doing a studio album. And I, I had demos that I'd already started. So we kind of, we, we cut some things straight ahead and we cut some other stuff where we just replaced replace sequence and stuff like that. We just ended up putting the whole record together that mm-hmm. way. And at some point in the game, I just finished up the vocals at Carmen Grillo's house. Uh, he had a Pro Tools studio down yeah. there. Uh-huh. I just was, I couldn't get back up to Berkeley all the time to the studio we were using. And uh, so I, f- I just went down to Carmen's and just finished up all the stuff that I needed to do, put some rhythm guitars on it and did some other stuff like that, got it done. And then, uh, and then you know, handed it back to the, to the co-producer who was a, who was a mixer. And uh, and he mixed it, and it was not very good. So I didn't like his mixes. So I finally took all the files, and I went to uh, to an engineer in L.A. named Kenji Nakai, and he and I just pretty much mixed the whole record. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I still think it's a great record. Mm-hmm. I think it's still slamming. Have you, have you heard the record? I've heard I've heard uh, a couple of tracks off of it. I think I've heard um, what, "Dream On" and "Swim." Yeah, swim. How about the guitar solo on that? It was Tal That's Moore's awesome. Playing. That's yeah. Nice. Yeah, Tal. I think is playing with. Uh, Creedence Clearwater revisited now. Really, That's his gig at this point, and uh, and and actually on Dream On, it's me and my kid singing. Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, and rhythm guitars is me and Carmen Grillo. Now, whenever the sons play, Carmen's the guitar player. I see. Now. Carmen cool. was with Tower for like eight years, nine years. Oh, sure. that's right. That's right. You know, we've talked a little bit about technology and how it's changed so drastically from, you know, the late 60s when you guys were recording some of your son's albums. And if you remember back to, you know, the Fat City recording session back, you know, whenever that was, I think, 66 or whatever, and compare it yeah, to... Yeah, four to four. Four track to four track to four track. Yeah. Jeez. You know, you cut your basics on the four track and then mix it down to two. Right. And then throw it to another four track, you know... Two more overdubs, mix that down to two. Sure, yeah. Go to another four track, and, and I think "Sing Me a Rainbow" was like seven or eight generations down. Right. Oh so the engineer has to be on his toes all the time. Right. Right. I mean, you're always in a mix mode. You know, if you do two overdubs, you 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 got to change over and open up more tape. Mm-hmm. The first Big Sons album, the Loosen Up album, was eight track, and we thought that was ridiculous. I Man, look how much, look how many tracks we got. Mm-hmm. And, Jeez. Uh, Next one was probably sixteen, and then we were then we were uh, into twenty four for years. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, on that same subject, you know, like like uh, any of us in the music and recording industry, we've been kind of forced to adapt to various technological advancements. And have you know you personally been quick to embrace new technology when it presents itself to you, or do you prefer no. kind of a mix of the? You, you kind of just stick with what you know and. It, I, 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 you know, I go kicking and screaming into the next place. <laughs> you know, kicking and I still have my 24 track I haven't used it in years it's, a, it's, a, yeah. you know, it's an $18,000 doorstop at this point <laughs> isn't that the, isn't that I, the, when I moved out here I tried to get somebody to, to you know I tried to sell it for like 400 bucks mm-hmm. and some guy says you know you, if you give me 400 bucks I'll come take it out of your house <laughs> I just went all of that I'll just it, you know. isn't it it'll sad. eventually come back into oh, sure. I'll find some use for it you know but, uh, you know, it was we were doing an album a couple of years ago, and I walked into uh, Westlake in L.A., into mm-hmm. the room that they did most of Thriller in. Yeah. Right. And there wasn't, there wasn't a tape recorder in the room. Jeez. There was no tape recorder in the mm-hmm. room. There wasn't a cassette machine. There wasn't anything on tape. <laughs> it was all CDs and, uh, and, and uh, hard drives. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, this is a place where Thriller was recorded on, on 24-track. Exactly. Right. Actually, in those days, I mean, Swedeen would have you know maybe maybe four or five you know tape recorders all linked together to, to record you know, and now with Pro Tools, you know, there's it's really kind of unending amount of tracks, right? Which is 
some of the reason that people get over overshot. I think Carmen Grillo said something great to me. He says, man, Pro Tools is cool. If you remind yourself every time you use it, it's a tape recorder. Right. Exactly. And, and don't go immediately for all the all the bells and whistles and mm-hmm. just get it. It's just a place to put your, your sound. The thing that's most important is what's always been most important. The song, the singer, the and how you feel. And then pitch and, and intonation. Right. It's just another recording medium. It's just another recording. It's just a format, and that's all right. there is to it. And right. if you can kind of keep that in focus, and there's a lot of tricks you can play. I mean, Peter Gabriel's been the at the forefront of sure. these technologies. Every time there's a there's a move, you know, right. using a lot of samplers, he was right there with it. Yeah. One of those guys mm-hmm. is just always on the on the cutting edge of it. And a couple of years ago, he released a record. It was obviously a Pro Tools, you know, a Pro Tools thing, and it was so tricky. That I went, you know what? This is too tricky. I, I just finally went, uh, and and if anybody should be given carte blanche to do that, it's Peter Gabriel. He's a guy that's <laughs> always been on the front edge of it. So, I mean, right. if, if you know, he's he's a guy that could get away with it, maybe more so than a lot of people. But I know Fiona had Fiona Apple, or I think her second album was real tricky. Mm-hmm. And it's after a while you kind of go. You know, somebody did played something, did a mix of one of our one of Chicago's things or something. He said, "Well, what do you think of it?" I said, "Well, you know, uh, you want it in a sentence." And he said, "Yeah." I said, "I remember my first Pro Tools rig." You know, it's like you if you overdo it and you make it too tricky, you just really kind of all you're doing is you're advertising your engineer as opposed to to you know yeah. selling your song. You know what I mean? Right. Sure. Yeah. It's like, oh wow, this guy can play some really cool, tricky games. And, and modern wise, modern music wise, all those games are really part of the whole thing. Sure, it is. Yes. But you know, you've listened to really, really great hits. You know, like that we were talking about that that group Train, right, you know, right. a little while back. I mm-hmm. mean, that that first hit they had, that could have been just as easily on tape as it was on on Pro Tools mm-hmm. or anything. It was so right. well produced, it was so well written, and it yeah. was so well, you know, well mixed and all that. And it really was, it was kind of. It was old school in terms of like great song, great band, great singer, great great mix. Uh, what's to you know? What's to not like? You know what I mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. You're talking about drops of Jupiter. Yeah. Yeah. It's just beautiful. That was a great song. Just, you know, and it was modern. It was, but it still used strings, and there was just, I mean, it was. Yeah. Just, it was like a really a well produced piece of music. And mm-hmm. You know, that guy's that guy's. You know, he's off and running. He can't. He doesn't seem to be able to write a bad song. You know what I mean? Right. I don't even know the guy's name. He's doing solo album. Pat Monahan. Pat Monahan. Yeah. 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 He's awesome writer. Mm-hmm. Awesome songwriter. Well, you know, music's been such a, a big part of your life since you were a kid, and you know, I think you said you had several family members who who were singers, such as your grandparents and your mother and your sisters. And but you know, was oh, yeah. being around these musical influence all you needed to spark your music interest, or were there were there other people like uh, another family member or someone from outside of the family who was the catalyst for your musical development? Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for me, I mean, it's like you ask anybody. Oh, I just bought a new synthesizer. It's got all these new sounds on it that I've, you know, and I've just written five new songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, of course, because you were, you know, the, the new synthesizer got you down playing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and while you're playing, wow, look what look what happened out of this, right. you know. And uh, and almost every time you get a new a new playback system or something like that, you, you know, you're you're all excited about how it sounds. <laughs> the next time you write right. it. Exactly. When I was a kid, uh, you know, I've I've found myself. You know, I mean, at some point there was a there was a guy that used to play with with a band I was in before the sun started. A guy named Rob Moitoza. He was an awesome, awesome bass player, and he was like he was kind of ahead of the game. I remember one in, in one and he was, a, he was a real serious record collector. In one week, he turned me on to James Brown live at the Apollo, mm-hmm. the first one. He turned me on to Lightning Hopkins. He turned me on to Bill Evans. And he turned me on to uh, Ornette Coleman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All in one week. You know, and up to that point, I'd been just sort of a pop guy, digging whatever's, whatever's on the radio and so on and so forth. And I just, and it just opened my eyes like crazy. And then in, in that period of time, I was, just, I was just anxious to, you know, get into anything. I started listening to a radio station out of Oakland, which is basically a black AM station called KDIA. Yeah. 1310, awesome station, always has been. Actually, Sly worked there for a while as a disc jockey. Huh. And uh, he was at K-Soul in San Francisco, and then he went over to KDIA, and then he just you know took off like a shot. Yeah. Because Sly, Sly basically it was based out of San Francisco originally, and mm-hmm. uh, he was basically uh, 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 had a record collection of unbelievable stuff. Really? So I just became an R&B freak, and then when I heard Lou Rawls, that was it. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
I remember the first time I heard it, I think it was St. James Infirmary off Black and Blue album. And uh-huh. I just went, that's, that's it, here's my teacher. <laughs> I, I got it. I got a. I got to check this what, guy. What out, an amazing you know. voice! I mean, that is. Well, a... you know, it's, his voice is just awesome. It's just so sexy and so natural and so straight ahead. And his phrasing, his back phrasing, was just what I needed to have. You mm-hmm. know, just to really put me in the backside of. It. So, so what do you later glean? on? We became pretty good friends. I said, "Hey, what, where did this that back phrasing come from?" He says, well, yeah. and he, always, he, was, "He was just jiving me." He says, well, Bill, it's basically, I just forgot the words to the last second. <laughs> and it was just, you know, Lou's such a sweetie pie, such a, such a wonderful guy. It was, uh-huh. it was, you know, we kind of, we were at the same management agency for a little while. So uh-huh. Lou and this B&B management that was in, in L.A. that had, had Rufus and Chaka. They had Kansas. They had uh, The Gap. They had Lou Rawls. They had Les McCann. They had us. They had, oh, they were just slamming. They had, I think... No, wait a minute. I was going to say Quincy Jones, but that wasn't—that's wrong. He was always with Fitzgerald Hartley. Right. At any rate, you know, so I just kept running into Lou all the time at the office, and you know, he's just what a what a sweetie pot. You know, I really miss him a lot. Guys like Lou Rawls that uh, you you glean from uh, to sort of uh, make you the singer that you are. Which can you name a couple other uh, influences that you had a chance to really well, connect I mean, with in and those say, "Hey, days, look. when I was a kid, I mean, you know, I mean, it was." Pretty obvious that I was I was on my way, and certain musicians would. I remember, I remember meeting this sax player that played with a group that I that I checked out. Uh, it was basically a group out of Vegas, an awesome sax, sax player and a great band leader. And the guy said, "Listen, there's two things you got to remember. One, steal everything. If you like it, steal it. <laughs> two, forget who you stole it from." <laughs> suddenly the thing that you stole from this guy you're going to put together with the thing that you stole from this guy and right. suddenly people are going to listen to you and go that guy made that up uh-huh. yeah. you right. know what I mean and mm-hmm. now I've heard guys that there was a guy out of Houston that was such an awesome singer <laughs> this guy this guy was blessed with an almost unbelievable voice and range and pitch and time and but he was Kenny Loggins for like eight years Mm-hmm. That's all he did. Everything it was all Kenny. Every note he sang, it was like Kenny Loggins. And then suddenly one day he was Luther Vandross, and that's all he did was Luther. And I was just going, man, if this guy had done what I did, it just ripped stuff off. And then I got to the point where I was starting to rip off, rip off lines from sax players. Wow. I mean, I probably learned more of my licks. I mean, obviously Ray Charles. You listen to something, you go, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll well, sure. Sing something, I'll go, and then I'll you know listen to a Ray Charles thing and realize, wow, I stole three of those. <laughs> Just forgot about it, you know. And but you know, King Curtis was an awesome guy for singers to listen to. Because King Curtis just had such a vibe, and even Cannonball at some mm-hmm. level, if you really wanted to hop into it, that's mm-hmm. that's a guy to learn great vocal parts right. from. I mean, I got to the point where I'd I'd hear an organ organ lick, and I'd, try, I'd learn it on guitar, or hear a guitar lick, and learn it on the organ. You know? mm-hmm. And just kind of mix and match because I mean it, you know it's basically shuffle the cards as often as you can because you got a better chance of stumbling into something of your own. Mm-hmm. That's at least the way I looked at it anyway. When you moved to L.A. and you went searching for and let's just say uh, you know your your solo career. I mean you developed eventually. You I had re- a so- I had a solo deal before I moved to L.A. You did? Yeah, I did. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I had worked with, uh, I worked with, the Suns had worked with this guy at B&B, and the guy at B&B flipped over from B&B and went over to work with uh, with what was frontline management at the time. He was involved with an agency that was okay. connected to the front line. So, and he was trying to help us, and he just, you know, he had talked with Irving and Howard and, and went, hey, you got to get this guy a record deal. I think he's going to bail from his band. Yeah. And the band was pretty well known around that, you know, around L.A. We right. played there pretty regularly. And uh, and I got a I got a, a singles deal or no it was an, it was an album deal hmm. it wasn't a big deal and it was kind of you know it's let's you know come on down here move on down and and we'll you know we'll figure out who your who your uh, who the best uh, producer for you is right. and I and I went to David Foster I said man you want to produce he said yeah if they'll let you because David was really known as as being a session guy sure time. yeah yeah he was a piano player and you know Irving was kind of going why don't you get Joe Wizard I said well Joe just did you know, Boss Gags's stuff. All Joe's going to do is hire David Foster. Why don't we just go to David Foster? <laughs> Everybody sounds like oh, David Foster will never be a producer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people don't 
you know, there's people that, that they get they get a uh, they get a snapshot of somebody as mm-hmm. who they that somebody was when they first met him. Right. And no matter what that somebody does to change, he'll walk up to the first guy and say, "Hey, man, how you doing?" Yeah. And the guy will dig in his pocket and pull out the snapshot and sit there and put it between the guy who he is now and and put it in front of his eyes and talk to the snapshot. Jeez. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when I yeah. moved to LA, I was probably I weighed probably you know forty pounds more than I do now. I had a beard. I was in a different position. I was probably doing blow and weed and booze <laughs> and you name it at that point of the game. And I still to this day I see and I haven't done any of that crap since for twenty three, twenty four years, something yeah. like that. And and I'll at this point I'll come up to somebody who I knew back then, mm-hmm. and they'll sure enough they'll pull out the you know pull out a snapshot and talk to the snapshot of who I was when they met me the first time. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. And it's human nature, it's the way it is. So people had David Foster down as a, as a as a piano player. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know when he first came to town, he, I mean he had two things going. One, he was a rehearsal piano player for uh, uh, Helen Reddy, and two, he had this he was the producer on that Skylark hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just like a one-hit, you know, thing out of nowhere. Right, but right. I mean, it was enough for him to, you know, to get his taste for it, and you know, boom, on the, the next thing was the next thing, you know. So he and him and Graydon work, him and Jay Graydon worked together a lot, and I just sure. kind of fell into their little friendship, you know. Yeah, yeah. So when those guys were going out doing millions of sessions, they would tell the producers, "Hey, well, listen, when you're uh, when you get around to background vocals, you should get this guy because he's really good." Right. So, I mean, those guys, both Jay and David, were very, very instrumental in me getting my first dates in town. Hmm. You know, just to fill, you know, just to to pay the rent while we were waiting for the pos- waiting for the chance to start, you know, to start a new record. Sure, absolutely, yeah. So, and when I moved into town, I actually moved about two doors down from David. I just happened to just happened to work out. There was a house uh, open that seemed like a pretty good house for me and my wife and two kids. Uh-huh. And uh, and we moved into town. I had just a little bit of publishing money to get me through the first couple of months, and and actually, you know, both uh, both David and Jay were doing millions of sessions at that time, and uh, and they just told every single producer, gave them all my phone number. I mean, it was, and it was the- really really a soulful thing to do, you know. And and you know, they got me my first dates, and I went and did pretty good work, and and I got me more. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I, they went, wow, this guy's good. Can I get you to go do this other album? Yeah, absolutely, I'm there. So, I mean, next thing you know, I was I was, uh, I was, was just doing a lot of dates. I mean, the last thing that I wanted to to really do, that I, that I went to Los Angeles for the purpose of doing, was yeah. to become a vocal arranger and, and contractor, you know, right. for background vocals. But I did it so much that I eventually really kind of got into it. Yeah. And then you know, doing my own stuff in in the studio, I just went. Well, let me let me just deal with this. I'm you know, I'm working with with guys like you know Jay Graydon and David Foster and stuff like right. that. Didn't it didn't hurt when it came to like learning music, you know? Right. Absolutely. So he did produce learning, the album and learning how to hit tape correctly. Keith Olsen was really was really very helpful to me when I first got to town. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know those you know working with those kind of guys, it was sort of like, well, let me rise up to this occasion. You know, I'm. I'm in the ball game here now. This is something going on because in the mid seventies, there was a lot of records being made. Oh, it, right. was, an, yeah. it was. It must have been like a, a session explosion. And you, I mean, it was. You were at the right oh, time awesome, at the right man, and right was, time, you know, right place. And at some point in the game, I was working so much, I went. I'm, I got to go double scale, which was unheard of. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was. It wasn't unheard of for players. Right. Uh-huh. Right. It was unheard of for singers, and I right. just went to you know I just went to double scale for three weeks. It was really really light, and all oh, of a sudden sure. I was working three times as much as I was at single scale, except the quality of the gigs was even better. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. I was Donna Summer and Elton John, and you know right. I mean, all of a sudden it was like real major records. Right, right, and a lot of it was just like, hey man, if you if you think you're worth that much, you must be. Yeah. Do you, do you recall uh, when you started doing vocal sessions? What you, what your first major uh, session who was for? You know, I got a call to go do a do a thing on a Jimmy Smith album. Now, being an organ player, uh-huh. yeah. that was pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. And I did all almost all the background vocals. Me and Donnie Gerard and Carmen and Nettie, the two girls I worked with forever, did uh, on the on on Foster's. I think second production was J.P. Morgan. Really? Wow. That was an awesome record. It yeah. Was a beautiful record. And then and then uh, and then Jay. I think Jay got me on some Al Jarreau stuff right off the bat. I think it sang a little bit on Breaking Away. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I can't even remember. It was just—it was just earlier on. I just came down mm-hmm. and did a lot of. Flew down from L.A. in those days, uh, or from San Francisco to L.A. In those days, I think it was PSA Airlines was uh, twenty-five dollar flight to Burbank. So 
so I could go down and charge extra fifty bucks you know, <laughs> on, on a on a session, and and you know, hey, man, just you know, throw me an extra fifty bucks for the plane ticket, and I'll be there, and boom, you know. So I was I was you know driving out to L.A. or to San Francisco Airport from Marin County, hopping on a plane, flying down to Burbank, working in the studio all day, flying back to San Francisco and driving back to to Marin County. And after a while, I was doing it so much, I finally said, "Ah, this is enough. Let's just move there." <laughs> this is this is kind of going on, you know. I'm I'm beginning to see that this may be a, a way to actually keep keep moving here, you know. Man, but Marin County is such a beautiful place. It really is. It, it is. still is uh, in, until you're caught in traffic, traffic <laughs> yeah. anywhere in the earth. Yeah. And they, they did, there's one highway, and there's uh, you know, and that highway is built to really take you know to really handle you know a couple hundred thousand people you know living in Marin and Sonoma, and there's you know it's you know a couple of million at this point. I've I've hiked Muir Woods a dozen times, and it's just I just love it. It's one of the best places. You ever go on the top of a, on top of a mountain up by where the uh, where the the amphitheater is on the very top of Mount Tamalpais? I know what you're talking about, but no, I've never been up there. Oh man, you get on a really warm day up there. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's just awesome. And there's see, Marin County's got like I don't know, three hundred and fifty thousand acres of either either water company land or state park or federal park or you know, it's just there's you know, you get on top of Mount Tam and you look. You look down from Sausalito to Novato, and you see that there's population just around that part of the mountain. Right. Hmm. You turn around and look the other way, and it's 35 miles to the coast. There ain't nothing but birds and trees. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and it's so it's so close to San Francisco. You can get you can get lost in the wilderness out there, and you're within you know you could you know you could put up a smoke signal and people would see it on you know on the top of the Transamerica building you know? <laughs> that's how i mean that's how beautiful it is really close it's, yeah. it's just something real i mean they always talk about magic marin it's mm-hmm. absolutely true wow yeah it's beautiful it's a beautiful place but i mean you could not i mean the kind of music i was doing and the kind of music that was happening up oh let's put it this way when i moved to la to do records the grateful dead were at the peak of what was going on and everybody tried to sound like them right just went, you know this this just ain't the place for me it's not working sure. for me mm-hmm. you know we did a gig one time when terry haggerty played some of the most awesome guitar i'd ever heard i mean it sounded like john mclaughlin or something it's just ridiculous uh-huh. and the, and the audience was like huh and then the new writers <laughs> of the purple sage played afterwards and uh-huh. not there's not a bad band i mean they're an awesome band mm-hmm. for what they do and stuff but they were just you know Two notes and they were flipping, you know. So I just was that. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't working for me. And you know, the R and B scene over on the other side of the bay hadn't really kicked in. You know, Cold Blood was having trouble. Loading Zone was having trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of bands over there that were just having. You know, they just couldn't really make it. Tower, I think, is probably out of all of them, really, really kicked in at some level. And, and you know, Sly, Sly, you know, hit and ran. I mean, he was out. Of, he was out of San Francisco in no time. The minute he yeah. took off and ran, you know. So, and I think the same thing, you know, there's always one band that happens out of that neck of the woods at one time, you know. Huey and the News did pretty well for a while. That's true. Yeah. did well for a while. Mm-hmm. Green Day's had a couple of runs out of there, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. right. It's, you know, that whole neck of the woods up there, it, was, it just was never, you know, it was a wonderful place for me to be, but it just wasn't working musically. Well, and you mentioned Train a couple of times, and they're out of San Francisco. Yeah, they're out of that neck of the woods also. Yeah. Love that. I love that group. It's oh, yeah, they're awesome. great. Well, it's just kind of you know it's it's newer. It's I, I don't necessarily claim to understand where they're coming from or what you know what their what their move is. It's just I just there's there's a there's a lot of quote new great stuff that doesn't have it doesn't hit choruses and, and you know it's not really based on singers and songs. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's kind of coming back. And I think Train might have be one of the bands that really kind of all never really lost sight of what that was about. Yeah, I agree with you there. What a really good song structure is about, and how to really how to really pay it off at the chorus, and and there's just something about that craft of of putting that together, and I, and, I, and that's that's all that's going on in the country scene down here. I mean, if I that's asked true. a friend of mine why he moved it, why he moved to Nashville, and he said words. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, funny. I got you. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, you've got you've got your, uh, your your new album coming out. Well, like you said, probably around September, as it probably will. Well, will, will I'd, work I'd out. say so. I mean, I'm shooting for June and July, and I'm going to start yeah. really pushing mm-hmm. for it. What yeah. other things do you have coming up this year? Well, you know, Chicago's. Uh, I think 
my my wife actually saw the the uh, I think we're going to Japan with uh, with Huey in the news in uh, in April and uh-huh. we're doing uh, we're going to do Doobie Brothers I think in June. Cool. Oh yeah, very neat. Uh, that's us, cool. Us the dudes. we've done that before. That's always fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 great. You know, I get to go hang out with all my friends, friends from up north. Sure, <laughs> all, <laughs> all San Francisco guys. Really, yeah, no doubt. Point. You know, I I know the guys in Huey in the news better than I know the guys in Chicago. You know, I've known them longer. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, other session work that you're doing there in Nashville to to speak of? Well, you know, I run across something here and there. Occasionally, I'll do something, uh, but you know, not, you know, I'm not, I'm not. You know, the thing is, when I was when I was doing sessions and really doing them, you know, deep. And then I took this gig, and I, and for about a year or two, I tried to keep my foot in the water in the session seat. So mm-hmm. we'd come home for a from one month break, yeah. and I'd book it. Yeah. And then I realized, you know, I'd go. We go back out and I'd look at all the rest of the guys in the band. They were in Hawaii, and they were taking a break, and they were actually taking a break and going out, you know. And I was just studio tanned. I was shot completely, and I got to the point where I was going on the road to get some rest. <laughs> so I kind of, at some point in the game, I just kind of went, you know what? I I, I got to go ahead and let let my studio presence just fade, you know, yeah. just let it let it go away. Well, the thing is, is you you leave town, and you the guy says, hey, can you can you work for me uh, next week? So no, I'm out of town. I can't. And he gets somebody else, and that somebody else, he calls him and says, can you work for me next week? And he says yes. And you know, suddenly it's Bill who. Right, you know, the, the next guy who's more available is gets starts getting all the work. Right, and it just works that way. I mean, you know, I was I was real. My dad always said it was a definition of an expert's a guy from the next county. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's kind of what I was. I was like the new kid in town. So for you know three or four years, I was kicking like a mule, and then Richard Page came along, and he's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, yeah, yeah. Right. So all of a sudden, Richard's getting all the gigs, and you know I was smart enough to go, "Hey, Rich, hire me." So he started hiring me. You know, <laughs> instead of me hiring him, he started hiring me. So I mean, I managed to eke out another couple of years in it. But you know, I mean, there's it's, it's sort of a short shelf life when you're when you're looking at that kind of situation. Yeah, right. You know, in a session scene like that, and I think around here in Nashville, I've only been here for two years. I haven't, you know, and I haven't really tried like crazy. You know, I mean, there's plenty of phone numbers I could call saying, I'm in town, I'm, I want to work. Yeah, right, right. But then by the time the work comes around, I may be out of town, and, and then I've I've pretty much lost it. Right. Well, yeah. So I want to go ahead and just go on, and then if, if some point of the game I just bail from doing road work, yeah. then I'll, I'll really make an attempt to, like, you know, connect up in town. Yeah, yeah, sure. But there's a lot of singers that have got all the gigs. We have a, several of our past guests that have sort of migrated from uh, uh, L.A. over to the Nashville area. And, I mean, we started off, uh, I think, uh, Keith Thomas, uh, gee whiz, uh, even, even David yeah. Hungate. As a matter of fact, I think Keith's actually in L.A. doing a project now. Is oh. he really? Yeah. He's, a, he's a real good, he's a, he's a good friend of my son. Yeah, he, he's really cool. And David Hungate moved there, of course, back then, right before. Hungate moved there right after four. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Hungate, somebody just posted something on my website the other day. It said, David Hungate once quote, it was a Hungate quote. Uh-huh. The Bill Champlin single album is the best album nobody's ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like David. That sounds just like him. It's just perfect, you know. And he did some of the best work I've ever heard. On it. Hey, you know what? If you want to, if you want to laugh a little bit, you got to hop into uh, onto Inside Music Cast and listen to the David Hungate interview. The way he describes his meeting Steve Lukather for the first time will have you rolling. That was a classic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, there's some stories that will never go away about, uh, about David Hungate. I mean, there's one, one about this one story of, of the stuff Hungate did when, when Jay Grade and Jeff got in, a, in, a, in a, some kind of weird faux pas. They were, they were, they were spatting at some level, and Hungate just came through. Came through like a dog. I'm not even going to tell you the story, but it was oh, he's a funny oh, man. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's he's you know at least I mean I haven't I haven't seen David. In, I'd say probably 25 years. Holy cow! Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I just you know I, I I travel in a little bit different circles. You know. Oh well, right. you but, got. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think he's just awesome, man. I think he's one of the best bass players ever walked the earth. Yeah. Just serious. Well, listen to the interview. He's doing some very interesting collaborations right now. He's uh, he, you know, he's a trombone player. There was a thing, Foster and Graydon, and I think I think somebody, maybe even Carlton, 
and Hungate all had a band, and everybody had to play instruments they didn't know how to play. Foster, <laughs> 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 I think, was trying to play a, like a saxophone or something like that, and they That's... fired Hungate because there wasn't an instrument that he couldn't play. <laughs> I mean, That's great. No, man, I'm sorry, man. You're out of the band, man. <laughs> uh, what <laughs> I a saw great a picture of it. I said, what the hell is this? You know, and everybody had these instruments that were like, what's this? He says, well, that was right before we fired Hungate. I said, what'd you fire Hungate for? He says, because he played everything too well. We couldn't find an act that he couldn't play good. You know? That's too funny. That's great. The rest of us can't get a sound out of these things, but slop, you know? <laughs> it's obviously, it sounded to me like a drinking thing more than anything <laughs> yeah, <else>. Probably. <laughs> uh, hey, Bill, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. We really appreciate your time and all the great stories. Well, and, thanks for having me, you guys. We've yeah. laughed too much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I yeah, can tell. Don't, don't stop, stop laughing. It's really bad for the <laughs> No doubt. <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, somewhere down the road, like I tell all of our guests, we, we might catch up with you, and, uh, and uh, we really appreciate everything uh, you're doing, and, and we can't wait to hear your new album. No doubt. Oh, great. Well, you know, when you when you hear that it's out, give me a call. We'll talk about it. Yeah, that sounds great. Got you guys. All right, take, take, take it care. easy. Be good. Special thanks to Bill Champlin for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at insidemusiccast.com. 